welcome everybody to our third episode, uh, well, third part of our uh, very interesting series on how we're trying to look deeper into COVID-19 pandemic resulting into new issues and new opportunities in health policies, um, trying to find ways to reconsider criteria for evaluation, looking for solutions, uh, perhaps where others haven't looked deeply enough, um, and trying to understand what sort of pressures and uh, resilience factors are coming through in health services and the patient community together. That's going to start having to become priorities for policymakers, policy changers, uh, and the entire dynamic of the health ecosystem in many, many parts of the world today. Um, I'm Rohit Segal. I'm the chief strategist at the Voices Project, a multilateral, multilateral advisory in Singapore. And I'm so pleased that I'm joined today by Gail O'Sullivan, uh, adjunct professor at Georgetown University, as well as a director of social and behavioral change at Kantar Public's International Development Practice, and uh, Tiki Pangestu, uh, visiting professor, Yonglu Lin School of Medicine at the National University of Singapore. Thank you so much both for making the time today. Well, um, I'm so excited uh, that we've got Gail and uh, Tiki for this culmination episode that I'm not gonna waste any much time. Um, and I'm gonna start obviously first by asking uh, Gail and Tiki to introduce yourselves to our listeners um, and tell a bit about yourselves and what makes you, what makes you tick. Um, Gail, let's, let's start with you first. Great, thank you, Rohit. Um, yeah, so I am an adjunct professor at Georgetown University. I teach in our MBA program, a course called Social Marketing for Global Good. Um, my day job is Director of Social and Behavior Change at Kantar Public in the International Development Practice. Kantar Public is the second largest market research company in the world with over 30,000 employees. So we are really a thought leader in data and insights, and we're building out our behavioral science team to really do that more of a research to practice or implementation science model. So even though I have worked in global health for over 30 years, I have absolutely no academic qualifications in public health. I have an MBA in international marketing, and my passion is really using all the tools of the private sector, business, commercial marketing to solve social problems and to prevent illness and prevent unintended pregnancies. So I've done that in over 40 countries around the world, mostly with the US Agency for International Development, World Bank, uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And my passion is really preventing the problems from occurring in the first place, because we so much of the illness and death we see, especially in the global south, is completely preventable. If people had the right knowledge, tools, access to good quality services. Um, and so that's really where I have put most of my energy. Thanks. Thanks, Gail. Um, Tiki? Yeah, uh, thanks, Rohit. It's, it's a pleasure to join you again. Uh, I have quite a different background to Gail. My, my, my background is actually in um, biomedical science. I'm an immunologist, microbiologist uh, by training. I spent a long time in academia in Malaysia. And then I joined the World Health Organization in 1999 working on research policy in our member countries and focusing very much on the use of evidence in health uh, policy development. Um, so I, I retired from WHO in 2012 and then came to Singapore to actually work in both the School of Public Policy as well as the medical school. So, so Gail, although we have different uh, backgrounds, I think we complement each other 
you know, I probably come at this from a more sort of scientific, technical, and more importantly, from a high level policy uh, perspective. And I think that's sort of uh, complemented nicely by your interest in social determinants, importance of be behavioral change. And all of my years at WHO, and of course, in the context of the SDG, it's, it's uh, becoming increased, increasingly important that uh, prevention really is the way to go in the future. Uh, so uh, I hope we have a good discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Um, well, for listeners who were following our earlier two episodes, you'd have seen that we were setting the foundation of understanding uh, and actually deep diving into a particular preventable disease to try and understand hypotheses, uh, what sort of factors are coming in that are either preventing or in some instances helping to accelerate. So best case practices that are actually there to uh, start designing the new age way of maintaining care, maintaining practice, and all the while trying to look at where the necessary recalibration integration factors are necessary in patient continuum. Um, today's world of health system is obviously very different from five years ago and the acceleration in the last two years of disruption, if one can say, I don't think it was a disruption really, uh, we could have a whole discussion on just that alone, but has created uh, obviously a, a necessity to look deeper at what's really gonna start happening when we look at various parts of the patient care system, as well as the uh, health systems themselves. Um, Gail, what are your takeaways in the context of how have things begun to change uh, in the context of one's relationship with health services, in the context of one's own management of chronic conditions? Uh, what, what, what is your experience been? Well, I do think the COVID-19 pandemic has exposed all the fault lines in our healthcare systems globally. Um, we now understand in a much deeper way um, what this term social determinants of health is really all about and the intersection between um, your housing situation, your job situation, your education level, your, um, your income level, and how that all impacts your health and um, your health outcomes. So unfortunately, a lot of our systems were designed by people who have degrees like mine, MBAs, who are really about the bottom line and money and revenue models. And I feel like we've really gotten away from designing health systems that actually are centered around the needs of the people that we're trying to serve. Um, so as a marketer, I always start with my audience and I start with deep dive audience research to understand what is the problem what are the drivers of the problem? What are the barriers to change? What are the potential solutions and perceived benefits to the audience of making a change? And I design everything from there. And my own opinion is I think most of our healthcare systems today have it backwards where it's a business model and not really about what the needs of the, the patients are. Um, and then we've seen this really terrifying acceleration um, in mistrust of all of our big institutions that typically were kind of really solid pillars of um, trust and information in an emergency kind of setting. So there's a whole anti-science movement in the United States right now, which is really uh, unprecedented. People are questioning uh, eminent authorities like Anthony Fauci and um, experts who traditionally have been very respected and well listened to. Um, the explosion of misinformation and disinformation, especially in social media, 
and certain um, mass media platforms like certain television stations here in the United States has just fueled that whole lack of trust or decline in trust in not just science, but in our government, um, in, you know, sort of um, the medical establishment writ large. I mean, it's, it's really, um, people don't know who to believe anymore. And so you tend in those emergency situations where you don't know what's true and what's not to listen to people in your own community. You know, people are with the vaccine uptake, for example, much more influenced by what their um, religious um, leader in their local community says about vaccines or what a trusted family member says, because people are not sure what to believe in terms of mass media and these other institutions and sources. So um, it's, you know, to be honest, there's been a lot of mistakes made by public health uh, leaders in the pandemic. It is a, a new um, phenomenon that we haven't encountered before. We know that science evolves and changes over time. And so messaging has to evolve and change with the science. But there were definitely some mistakes made, especially in the first year that really fueled that sense of mistrust and um, people not really knowing who to believe or what to believe. So I, there are a lot of lessons that I hope will be learned that we can take to heart now and be much better prepared for whatever the next pandemic is, because there will be another pandemic. That's just, that's just a fact. So we should at least be learning these lessons and applying them um, at this time. Thanks. Dickie, what would be your uh, feel to that? I mean, those, those I think are very necessary angles to look at that the level of um, mistrust of uh, otherwise sort of very strong pillars of voice of scientific credibility. Has that been shaken to its core? Is there, are there, are there things that are now happening that weren't happening before in that context uh, coming out of the pandemic? Yes, thank you. I think, I think Gail uh, summarized it uh, beautifully. I'm not gonna add too much to that. Just to underline, I perfectly agree that um, the distrust of government the anti-science feelings is something that we've not seen before. And that's been fueled to a large extent by social media. Uh, and you know, uh, in that sense, if you take an example of a country like Singapore, which has dealt, let's say, much, much better with the pandemic than other countries, one of the key uh, foundations of that success is social capital. Okay, that by and large, uh, the governance mechanism that was in place to deal with the pandemic had earned the trust and the confidence of the public in terms of good, timely, reliable information about what's going on. And importantly, because of that, the of trust amongst the people in terms of following government recommendations like get vaccinated, like wearing masks, like do social distancing. The compliance has been very, very good. So, you know, just to underline Gail's uh, point that uh, trust, uh, overcoming misinformation through good communication, strong social capital is really the cornerstone. A final comment, um, Gail referred to mistakes that have been made. You know, I have a slightly different take on that. Um, I have a lot of, because I work with the policymakers, I have a lot of sympathy with the policymakers. And as Gail mentioned, this is an area that's moving so quickly, okay? 
many decision makers, policy makers have to make decisions, policy decisions within 48, 72 hours. The science is changing. There are contradictory uh, findings from even two groups of respected scientists. So I have some sympathy with that, uh, that you're having to make in the face of uncertain information, okay, and conflicting data even sometimes. So I think, uh, for example, the WHO was criticized about wearing masks in, in the past, but uh, I have some sympathy with the policymakers that, you know, this is a, such a rapidly changing situation that uh, decision-making is even more challenging. Yeah, and it's, it's it's interesting that we've sort of gotten into this area because the reality is that um, much has been said beforehand about the need for health literacy and the pace of uh, ensuring that people understand uh, what it is that they need to be made aware of conditions. What is it that policy designers and the ones who have to implement that within the hospitals, within the clinics, at the coalface need to be able to manage the amount of information that comes down on them. And what's been happening, um, as it's been recognized in some other conversations, is the level of pace, um, the, 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 the quickness of uh, information that's coming down is not just information that's coming down to the layperson, but it's also, um, I think, Gail and Tiki, as you're saying, the, the, the sort of cascade of information is so much accelerated. So the, the question, I guess, is that with health literacy being so critical and vital, is digital literacy now going to have to become a key cornerstone of both the scientific community, the medical community, the ones who will be imparting the advice and the necessary information, as well as the receiver and the patient at the end? What will digital literacy mean in this context where there is misinformation and there is fragmented you know, bases, there are people you follow but with no other need, but because they have a thousand uh, followers, where do you see digital literacy now playing a role in this sort of next level of policy making? Um, and that's really, I mean, Gail, would you would you like to start off with that? Sure. Well, you know, Prof Tiki mentioned WHO. They have a whole team of people now since COVID-19 started. That's the infodemic team. So in addition to the term pandemic, we've talked about, you know, epidemics there is an infodemic and there's an actual team of behavioral scientists that are working on policy strategies, toolkits to try and break through all of that and get us to a better place with clear communication and improving the quality of information that's going out there. Um, there's a groups like First Draft, which is one of the nonprofits that's doing tremendous work in this space, trying to um, bust all of the the sort of the myths and the, the deep fakes that are out there. I mean, it's really terrifying how easy it is to doctor videos these days. They look completely 100% authentic and they're completely fake and people fall for them every single day. So there are a number of nonprofits working in this space, WHO. Um, when I say that mistakes were made, I'm, I'm referring mostly to what I've observed here in the United States. Um, to be honest, when um, this whole effort started and the previous um, administration called it Operation Warp Speed, as a communicator, I thought that was a terrible name because it implies that you're rushing really fast and you might be skipping some safety steps with vaccines and clinical trials and cutting some corners. And that name kind of played into a lot of the concern and the fears that people had. Um, the pharma companies were really controlling the public narrative here about vaccine safety early in the pandemic. 
Um, we were basically communicating through Pfizer and Moderna's press releases and the public health voice was really absent in the early days. So I, I, I cite things like that, that as again, an expert in this field, I would have handled those very differently. And there's been kind of a small group of us here in the United States who commiserate all the time about why we haven't been pulled into these conversations. The social marketing experts, the behavioral science community writ large, we have written to you know, the COVID task force, to the White House, to the CDC. We keep offering our services because we know that we could really help improve the quality of the communication around this um, pandemic. Um, and Francis Collins, who was our National Institutes of Health Director for many years, who just retired, as he was leaving the NIH, he bemoaned the fact that we hadn't pulled in the behavioral science community in a bigger way to um, get on top of these issues. So I think here in the United States, at least, there's kind of this latent recognition that we missed the boat in some respects in who we pulled into the room to help kind of create the narrative around um, behavior change messaging and the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's, it's, I think that's, that's quite a, uh, a really important insight that if the narrative is taken over by a certain uh, interest, then you're really yeah, left to very little to make a decision um, of yourself. Um, but let's, I, I know listeners have been asking um, to try and understand this more clearly that uh, a real world example or perhaps a, a certain continuum might help. Um, so for example, um, if we took, let's say a start here. So if someone who needs to be made aware, let's say for her risk of HPV, and we've talked in early episodes about what HPV is and the risks, et cetera, it carries, and be motivated to take necessary preventative action, uh, that decision to either vaccinate or get screened in many parts of the world, followed by the necessary outcomes, diagnosis, et cetera, it's not or never just about the public health message any longer. And I think uh, as Gail and Tiki have mentioned that it's difficult to make out and sift through what's the right you know, information, what's the right advice. What would be behavioral strategies or uh, mitigating factors that could be factored in for today's uh, uh, potential uh, um, at-risk person in this, in this scenario? And are there lessons from the past here that we might want to be picking up? Um, Tiki, would you have a, a, a thought on that? Yeah, just uh, uh, two, two quick points. The first point is your statement about health literacy and how digital literacy can play a role. I think that's just one side of the point, actually. Um, I think you must assume that not all parts, uh, segments of the population, especially in, 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 in the developing countries, are going to have access to all the digital sources of uh, information, okay? And I think it belies the fact that data, numbers, uh, scientific findings um, do not necessarily persuade people in terms of improving their literacy. So that's the first point. And I put myself in that category. I'm quite sort of digitally disadvantaged. Every time somebody asks me to download a new app, I just throw up my hands in horror. So that's the first point. It's just, you know, digital literacy, one side of it. The second point is probably more important. And um, I believe that the complement to digital literacy is an acknowledgement that many of these decisions involve people, people's behavior, okay? And 
focusing specifically on vaccine, let me cite Heidi Larson, who said that sentiments towards vaccines is a combination of external events and internal emotions, okay? And her argument is that throwing numbers, data, graphs at people, hoping that they will suddenly accept vaccination, especially vaccination of children, like what happened in Singapore, five to 11 year old started to get vaccinated with COVID. The minute you talk about vaccinating children, that's a very emotional issue, okay? And whatever numbers you throw at people, it's not gonna change their mind. You have to look at behavior, you have to look at emotions. So I just want to emphasize that it, it's two sides of the point. And you know, I, I'm talking to members of the choir here with Gail, but uh, yeah, I feel pretty strongly about that. Thanks. Thank you. Gail, your, your thoughts? Yeah, I think, you know, Prof Tiki has, has really highlighted the fact that human behavior is very messy and very irrational. And so many public health campaigns and efforts really overemphasize educating people. If like, right, if we only right. gave people information and knowledge, then magically everybody's behavior <laughs> is going to change. And it does not work that way at right, all. Right. And again, we have great evidence around all of this from the academic literature. We're using behavioral economics now and uh, leaning more into social sciences like anthropology, sociology, in addition to social marketing and some of the other sort of more traditional approaches that have been used in public health to drive behavior change. Um, but we really need to think about starting with a day in the life of our audience. So you mentioned HPV, for example. Um, I'm not sure about other countries, but I know as a parent myself, the HPV vaccine came on the market when my children were 10 and 12. So they were the perfect age. And here we give it to boys and girls. Um, so it's not just about girls, um, but they're not the target audience for any kind of information or campaign for uptake, right. right? It's the parents who are really in the driver's seat. So when you talk about vaccinating children, you have to think about segmenting audiences in terms of you have the ultimate beneficiary, which is the child, but you probably have to go through the pediatricians. You definitely have to go through the parents. You might have to do some stuff with the schools and, and teacher communities all of the influencers of children's behavior, right? Um, to try and, and get this vaccine, vaccine to be um, you know, taken up. And there is that concern that people associate it with sexual behavior and who wants to think of a 10 year old or a 12 year old in that way, right? So um, I listened to your last episode and one of your guests talked about emphasizing cancer prevention as opposed to HPV being a sexually transmitted virus, which to me makes a lot of sense. It's a, I mean, they're two separate but interrelated things that this virus can lead to cervical cancer, right? But if you talk about it more broadly as just another thing to protect your child from a potential cancer, that's a much easier conversation to have with a parent than talking about sex, right? Um, so it all comes back to framing it in a way that is going to engage your audience, make sense for your audience, it's a good example because as a marketer, I always think too about supply and demand. So if I'm gonna get this vaccine for HPV to be widely used, I need good supply, it has to be safe. I have to have quality assurance, cold chain, all of that around the supply of it. It has to go through some kind of a healthcare provider. So I gotta work with that audience. 
And by the way, one of my many pet peeves in our work is that we always put the burden on the consumer to make all the changes and, and change their behavior, right? But healthcare providers are often a huge barrier to healthy behavior change for consumers. And we have to look at the role that healthcare providers themselves play in facilitating or serving as a barrier to a behavior change. So you can't just assume that all doctors are gonna say the right things and frame this HPV vaccine in a way that's gonna make it easy and sort of helpful for a parent to, to follow through. So I think of segmenting those audiences on the supply side and then looking at the demand side, you know, again, how do we reach parents? How do we make it sort of culturally acceptable? Because we're talking about individual behavior change, but with something like HPV, which is brand new and you're trying to cover a whole population, you need to set a new social norm. So you need to think about not just individuals, but normative behaviors, right? Like that it's socially acceptable, it's socially desirable, that everybody should do it. It's a good thing. Everyone in my kid's school has gotten the HPV shots or you know, everyone in my community thinks this is a really good idea to protect kids this way. The more you can set that overall tone and norm that this is a good thing, the more, you know, the easier it will be for people to get on board with it. So maybe I'll stop there. Yeah, if I can, if I can just add quickly, I like your idea of shaping social norms, but that's a real challenge. You mentioned HPV, HPV and I immediately thought of the anti-retroviral anti therapies, which once again increased this perception There's two interventions are going to increase sexual promiscuity, okay? And that's been a particular problem in the Muslim countries in the developing world. And going back to what you said earlier, shaping the norms in this instance requires the participation of religious leaders. You know, we, we need to, as you say, uh, get the right people to pass the right messages. It's about protecting your kids. It's not about promoting promiscuity. Mm -hmm. Sorry, Rohit, to interrupt. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, in fact, this is this is exactly the dialogue and exchange we need uh, by, by all means. Um, because uh, uh, because I think Gail has touched upon something on looking at the uh, profiles and personas on what drives uh, the medical narrative, the scientific narrative. I mean, how easy, I mean, uh, to be sitting there as a doctor and talking to parents about uh, uh, you know, uh, sex, etc., sexual aspects uh, for the children. It's not an easy one. And um, whether whether we focus and emphasize a lot on how it needs to have more consumer involvement, um, I think Gail was you know you, you were reflecting that it's very necessary to start segmenting and understanding profiles of the medical mindset that would be able to feel that they want to promote this. And I think Tiki, as you've said, it's not about promiscuity. It's not about uh, anything of that sort. It's actually more about the protection aspect. Gail, before I move on to that um, next sort of section and conversation, is there anything you want to wrap up on that part? Because I think you, you and Tiki were having an interesting riff on that part. Uh, what, what, what would you have to say before we move yeah, on? Yeah, well, I would just maybe add one other insight, which is all the, the clinicians I've worked with all over the world, when I asked them, when you were in nursing school or when you were in medical school, did you get any training on behavioral science or how to have these conversations about behavior change with your patients. And everyone has told me no. So maybe there are some countries and schools out there that are teaching up and coming medical professionals how to use some of these methods and tools in their 
clinical settings, but I find it's a huge gap. And so we, we are just assuming because they're smart people and they have these fancy medical degrees that they know how to have a persuasive conversation or be able to answer questions correctly and sort of help people kind of move along a pathway to behavior change. And I don't think that you can assume that. I mean, this is a discipline like any other that you need to get some training on and some skill building and to be able to do it well. Mm -hmm. I think Tiki brought up this necessary fact that it's also not just imparting the scientific uh, uh, information, but community leaders, uh, religious leaders who have a responsibility and want to impart the right information to those who are sort of caught between the heavy duty science aspect as well as the day-to-day -day living uh, that, that they are aware of. And I think that's an important factor to, to come in because no one really thinks too deeply about uh, the community leaders and religious factors that, you know, when we talk about digital literacy, when we talk about the right information reaching, we need to also ensure <clears throat> that these, this group of stakeholders are equally kept informed. Um, in, in that context, really, I mean, when we talk about the, um, the factor that there is this public-private silo and the, if one can say, somewhat internal competition sometimes amongst health service providers, that uh, uh, the ability for us to start looking at profiles and personas, Gail, you talked about segment segmentation, and that's not a term we hear very often, and we should be hearing about it more often in health behavior strategies, particularly here in Asia. Uh, could you describe a typical sort of a segmentation uh, process outlined, very summarized, of course, but what would that start to look like? Would we be talking about stubborn all the way through up to advocates, or is it become more complex than that? I'll give you one example from my course. So I taught my course last night, and I had a guest speaker from a group called Sergo Ventures that's been doing some really interesting segmentation work around COVID vaccine uptake here in the United States. And they did a nationally representative survey and married demographics, which is usually the sort of starting point for segmentation. We, we often say we want to reach young people or rural people or people who are of this socioeconomic you know, group. And you can do that. That sort of helps you understand a little bit about who you're trying to reach. But it's not enough, especially with something like COVID vaccine uptake. So what Sergo did was they married those demographic variables with an analysis of psychobehavioral determinants and variables. So they looked at political parties and religious beliefs and you know, more values-based kind of characteristics to try and put together richer profiles of kind of how do these segments and personas fall out in terms of who around the United States is ready to get a vaccine tomorrow and who is at the other extreme and says, no, I don't believe this stuff, I'm never gonna get it. So what they came up with was five segments. So they call them the enthusiasts, who are people like us who work in public health, who believe the scientists, who are ready to get it tomorrow. That was 39% of the, the American population. The next group was called the watchful. They were interested, but they had questions. They didn't want to be one of those early adopters that jumps right in. They want to wait and see their friends and family members get it and make sure that they're okay before they get it. So that's 20%. Then there was a group called the cost anxious, that's 15%. And what's interesting about that is from day one in the US, the vaccine is free. It's, there's no financial cost. There's definitely opportunity cost, especially in the beginning. It was impossible to get appointments, like the pharmacy websites were crashing and 
people had to spend hours trying to even get their appointment. And then you had to take time off from work to go and get your vaccination. So there were other costs involved like that, but there's no financial cost. But there's misperceptions around that. A lot of Americans even today still think that there's an out-of-pocket financial cost to get the COVID vaccine. And that's just not true. Then there was 9% um, of the Americans were called system distrusters. So these are the people that the healthcare system maybe has never worked for them in their community. They could be a minority group that feels like they have you know, had negative previous experiences with the healthcare system. And this is only fueling their concerns in that regard. And then the last group is what they called the skeptics. And those are like the 17% of Americans who have believed a lot of the conspiracy theories. They think Bill Gates is gonna be putting a microchip in their body. Um, they think this is you know, a plot by you know, some other you know, liberal democratic group or something. And they're the ones that are gonna be the hardest to, to move along the spectrum to you know, accept a vaccine. So it's a really interesting and powerful sample, and they're, they're doing more waves of the survey to track movement over time. And in the year or so that vaccines have been available here, they have seen significant movement from that watchful group into the enthusiast group. And they've seen pretty good movement of the cost anxious into the watchful. So there is movement along that pathway, but the, the group at the far end, it's only declined by 1% since this started. So it, it's these recommendations have gone to the White House, to CDC, and state health departments are making, you know, hundreds of million dollar public policy decisions about where to put resources and what interventions we need to be implementing based on this segmentation so that we can do precision medicine, so to speak, to try and really use our resources effectively where they're going to have the most impact. Tiki, this is this is fascinating stuff. I'm sure for you as well, and something that I'm sure you've you've looked at this segmentation way that Gail just described. That surely not just U.S. centric. I'm sure. I'm sure that has a lot of applicability in the rest of the world. Yes, absolutely, uh, 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 Rohit. Uh, I found uh, Gail's description of that survey uh, fascinating. To be able to identify the different groups that you need to sort of, in a sense communicate with. Um, what I'm going to do is, as you hinted, is to give you a more global view, as opposed to sort of a, a more US-centric view that, that Gail presented. Um, but there are similarities. Uh, Gail mentioned uh, segmentation between uh, public and private sectors in terms of delivery of health services, different issues around the health systems in, in the United States. She also mentioned what you said at the beginning, which is financial toxicity. I think that's the word you use, out-of-pocket uh, payments. Um, so those issues are, are really absolutely big concerns at the global level. And maybe at the end, I'll talk about a recommendation. But uh, based on my years at the WHO, the way we should deal with this is through universal health coverage, okay? That's in a way the foundation of the sustainable development goal number three. And to put it briefly, it's all about making sure that all people obtain the health services they need of good quality. And secondly, without the risk of severe financial hardship linked to paying out of pocket for care. 
So um, that really is, I think, what on average, especially the low, lower middle income countries are striving to uh, achieve at this point in time, which has actually been derailed a little bit because of COVID-19. So, so that remains a, a real challenge to address that uh, segmentation as well as to address the financial issues. But we, I, I can maybe summarize a little bit at the end as to uh, in terms of a recommendation. Sure. But uh, that's the big challenge now, especially in the context of the pandemic. Sure. And, and we do want to leave time uh, to hear both your and Gail's recommendations to that. I, I think uh, one of the final sort of areas to sort of touch upon, and you have done that, Dickie, is on financial toxicity. Now, now, Gail, it's interesting in your segmentation, the ones who are experiencing or are fearful from a financial perspective, was that, am I correct in saying it was about 17, uh, seven, what was the percentage? 15%, 15%. Now, if you look at, let's say, parts of Asia where, do, where to Dickie's point, uh, UHC, is not as robust as resilient. That number is probably on a higher end. And moving away just from vaccines for a minute, uh, talking about things like, uh, you know, why don't people go for cancer screening, for instance? Well, should the result be positive, I'll be out of house and home. It'll be broke because yep. unless you have been shown, probably if one looked at it in the context of Asia, Southeast Asia, and you know, Pacific Islands particularly, that number might even be, you know, double that or something. And that's probably a massive, huge holding back that you may have somebody who sits actually saying, I believe in the value of health. I want to get my health. There's no way I can afford it. So I will therefore live, let's say, forego care and things like that. So, um, and, I, and I want to leave time for recommendations, but I just want to leave this quick thought, if any of you have a, a thought here, that mitigating strategies for this needs to have participation more and more than ever than ever before with the regulators, insurance, payer policy, and understanding what sort of potential to use your term now, uh, I'm going to use that a lot, the uh, uh, segmentation profile of why regulators and insurance won't or aren't able to look deeper into that area. Um, any quick thoughts before we move on to recommendations to that? Yeah, that the payer models and systems is definitely not my area of expertise. And I would just say as a healthcare consumer myself here in the US, and I don't mean to make this all about the US, but this is the market I really know best. And we don't have universal healthcare here. We have very inequitable health systems. A lot of families in America go bankrupt over their medical costs. And um, there's a, a bill that has just been debated in Congress to prevent what they call surprise medical billing. Because even when you have insurance, if you have a hospitalization, a surgery, you start getting these random bills in the mail from like the radiologist who read something and then the anesthesiologist, and that's all separate from the hospital's billing system. And people are just getting these crazy bills that are really expensive and you, nobody can make any sense of it. I mean, it's just broken. Um, so that's not my area of expertise, but I know it's a huge problem. Okay. Yeah, I mean, just to quickly add to that, I think um, Gail's already alluded to the fact that in dealing with this in the future at the global level, you are faced with this huge diversity of how different countries address the issue of providing equitable healthcare to their people, all the way from universal health coverage, universal health coverage for all, universal health coverage for some interventions, all the way to sort of more market-driven kind of systems with 
all the different permutations of the relative roles of government, insurance, uh, community health insurance, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it, it's a tough challenge. And I think there's no one size fits all in the future to deal with this financial toxicity issue. Thank you. Thank you, thank you so much. Uh, and, and thank you both for in the time that we've had to discuss these topics, we've actually landed on some very significant aspects that I'm sure we can we can take uh, necessary information out from. Um, I, I guess now is the time where we can really spend the last few minutes to talk about what your recommendations, what your leave behind messages as we've begun to understand what is otherwise a very complex situation, but making sense of this all now, what would be your viewpoints? What are the top factors facing our health strategy making today? And what would you uh, want our listeners to realize is facing us, will face us, and where are we headed to? Um, Dickie, why don't I start with you? Yeah, um, okay. I just have one underlying point here. Uh, in terms of health strategy for the future, especially at the level of, of the policy maker, um, and perhaps in the, in the context of universal, but uh, in the bigger goal of the WHO mission, which is to provide to all people the highest possible attainable level health. I believe there has to be really a change in the mindset, okay? And what I see is missing, and Gail's already alluded to this, is to complement the scientific data, uh, research, information, all that sort of uh, inputs that have been the cornerstone of policymaking, to complement that with a more values-based integrated approach to healthcare delivery. I believe that is what is missing. Where is the people in all of this? What are the values? of equity, of compassion, of trust, of participation, social justice, of human rights. That's what I find is missing in most countries, okay? So that's my sort of recommendation. And I'll give you a very specific example from my days at WHO. And Brazil, Brazil has had in place for many years something called the People's Health Conference. Every two years, policymakers have have by law to get together with the people, to listen to what their needs are, to listen to various aspects of social determinants, behavioral issues like what we've been talking about. And they have to listen to that by law and they have to take that into account before they shape their policies. And after that, they have to report back to parliament to be accountable. Now that to me is a system that brings in the people, that brings in the values that I just mentioned. That's what I think is what we need, a more values-based, not just science-driven approach to health policy in the future. More important, pandemic era. I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you, T. Gail? Yeah, I totally agree. And I would add maybe two other points. One is that, um, again, I think we need to flip the script and focus a lot more resources on prevention. If you look at like the global burden of disease report and other big data sets that are out there, there's no question that 
the highest costs to human health and to our economies are non-communicable diseases, but we're not investing in preventing NCDs nearly enough. And so you get all these people who maybe get you know overweight, they get diabetes, they get cardiovascular disease, and then we spend a fortune trying to keep them out of the hospital for 30, 40, even longer you know, years. That to me is a crazy system. Like, why can't we invest early and often in healthy lifestyles and behaviors that will prevent a large portion of those people from getting those diseases? We're never going to eradicate them completely, but we could really have a, a huge impact on health and on um, economic savings if we flipped that equation. The second one is uh, point is around really grounding every decision in the needs of your audience and really understanding your audience. I have seen many well-intentioned global health programs use a kind of a one size fits all to try and prevent malaria or HIV or some other illness throughout the global south. And many times they don't work and it's because they haven't taken the time to actually get to know those communities and what their specific needs are and how to adapt and tailor some of these solutions so that they'll be more appropriate for the people that we're trying to help. Um, and you mentioned religious leaders a couple of times, so maybe I'll leave, leave you with a very quick story, which is I designed the first ever condom marketing advertising campaign in the country of Morocco. Now this was back in the 1980s, so I'm really dating myself, but back then the idea of do it, running a condom commercial on television or radio in a Muslim country was really unheard of. And everyone said it can't be done. And we said, well, we're going to try. So we started with deep dive audience research. We went and we talked to imams and other religious leaders. We talked to government ministry of health and other officials. We, we went out in the community and talked to a lot of people. And what we found is that, like in many countries, men were using condoms, but not with their wives. It was a product they would use outside of marriage with another partner. And so it wasn't deemed like appropriate to use it in your home with your spouse. Um, but then what we tapped into was some language in the Quran that speaks to male responsibility for your family's health and to protect your family. And we ended up doing a campaign that was very male focused with kind of like a buddy dialogue uh, creative platform where one guy is telling his friend that he's he and his wife have started using condoms for family planning. And the friend is like, what? That's crazy, you know? And then the guy cites the Quran phrase and says, you know, family planning is not just a woman's responsibility. It's a man's responsibility too. And this is something I can do to help, you know, plan the number of children we're going to have and make sure that, you know, they're healthy. Um, so we, we did all this work. We had it, a whole campaign. We launched it and everybody sits back and waits for the backlash. You know, what's the reaction going to be? nothing. It went beautifully. We sold over a million condoms in the first year. We had quotes from imams and, you know, their Friday prayer sessions endorsing our campaign. Nobody, you know, objected because we did it in a very culturally appropriate manner. It was all based on local research. And it turns out men actually wanted to have a bigger role in this area. And they just didn't really realize that there were things that they could do to be, you know, a more active partner with their wife. So it was a success all around. Yeah, and just let me cite another very similar example. In Indonesia, just last year, when we were with a group of people, 
and Gail, you've worked on tobacco control before. Okay, we were trying to push push some of these alternative tobacco products that help people quit smoking, and there was huge resistance on the part of the government until the biggest religious organization, Muslim organization in Indonesia, publicly issued a white paper to say that this is the responsibility of public health that all Muslims can play a role in reducing the prevalence of smoking. And that had a huge effect. We're not there yet, but once again, going back to the importance of religious leaders. Mm. Thank you. Thank you so much. Great, great words to sort of leave this uh, episode with. Um, thank you both. You've given a, a lot more clarity uh, in an otherwise extremely complex uh, area to try and make sense of. A lot to take away from, I'm sure, for our listeners. Um, with that, um, I'll sort of conclude uh, this uh, series. It's been an absolute pleasure um, having uh, Prof Tiki with us uh, for the last three episodes. And uh, of course, today, I think, Gail, you have added a tremendous uh, new complexion to the way that we need to be looking at behavioral science, at the value of segmentation, at how we can break down uh, some of these more uh, hard to see gaps and make sense of it all. Thank you so much. Um, with that, uh, thank you all to all our listeners for listening and following. Uh, you can always find out more about us over at www.thevoicesprojectasia.org and at any time um, we'd be happy to hear from, from everybody. Thank you all so much. Thank you, Rohit. Thank you. Bye-bye.